Good morning. I'm so glad to be with y'all again and to teach you again. Thanks again for just always welcoming me and uh, making me feel like you're as for me as I'm for you. Um, I love the book of James. It's one of the first Bible studies I ever wrote. Uh, I love it. I love because he's direct and he's confrontational and he's honest, which might sound a lot like somebody else you know. So uh, I do. I really love it. But the book of James can be a very odd book to find in the New Testament, frankly, because it's like a list of things, and we don't find that in any other book in the New Testament. We find it a lot in the Old Testament. You find it in a lot of the Jewish writings. Like if you go back, it's one of the things that makes the Old Testament a little difficult to read is because you go back to Deuteronomy and you see list after list after list of rules about which animals you can eat and what you can't eat and um, what you're supposed to do if you kill your neighbor's cow, which is a thing in the Old Testament. You've got to figure out how much do you owe them. It's a cow and a half in case you're wondering. But there's also things like Proverbs where you just read a list after list after list of good advice and good counsel about how to be a, a good husband and what, what happens to people who are greedy for wealth and uh, how to speak to one another in love. But it's one list after disjointed list of counsel. And when you come to James, it can feel very much like this. You've already heard it as Davis taught you through it. He starts off saying things like, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. But then he moves on to say things like, if you like, anyone lacks wisdom, let him go to God who gives generously to all without reproach. And then let the lowly man boast in his exultation. And then he moves on to something that doesn't seem any related. Like no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. And then they get down to 16 and it's like, let no one be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. So as you're reading it, those things all don't sound like they're good advice. It's great counsel. They're commands in Scripture, but it doesn't sound like they all go together, which sounds very Jewish. And that's actually the thing I want to point out to you is that you're reading James, who is very much a Jewish man. He's thinking very Jewish thoughts. And you can hear it if you could learn Greek real quickly then you could see it even in the very words he uses. Like the words he used for the gathering places in the book of James is not churches, it's synagogues. He's thinking like a Jew who's very much a Christian now. See, that's the thing about James is that all the disciples, they hung out with him for how long? About, about three years, right? About three years the disciples hung out with him. How long did James hang out, hang out with Jesus? About 30. <laughs> so the thing is, I want you to know, James sounds a lot like his brother. James sounds a lot like Jesus. If you could go back and look in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 on the Sermon on the Mount or Luke chapter 6, where they are just quoting teachings of Jesus, it is just like the book of James, which is one thing I want to tell you as you're reading through it, you should never read it without reference back to the Gospels. Because frankly, James is like a plagiarist. All he does is quote his brother in different ways. What's amazing about that is that James hated Jesus while he walked this earth. He was like the brother who you can't get his voice out of his head, but that is not a good thing. He's just irritating to him. He thought he was crazy. He actually, in John chapter 7, it says that the Jews were hoping to kill Jesus, and his brother said to Jesus, why don't you go up to Judea? where, you know, they want to kill you. His brothers didn't know that he was the Messiah, but now, after the resurrection, James sees clearly. Jesus is his Christ. He's no longer just a brother. He's his Messiah. 
And every time James writes, he writes like Jesus spoke. So it's especially important as we go through this, you're going to hear it, and we're going to pop back and forth to some of those teachings. So we're going to be in James chapter 1. We're going to finish up the chapter today, James chapter 1, starting in verse 19. And you should see it on the slide if you don't have a Bible with you. Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be... This is always so hard for us. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, not being a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and unbridled and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Like I said, James has a lot on his mind, but there is a common thread through these passages. If you notice, there was one English word that repeated. I've already given you one from verse 16. Don't be deceived, brothers. But then look again at your chapter, our passage in verse 22. What's it say? Don't be, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then again in verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious but doesn't bridle his tongue, what does he do? Deceives, who deceives him? Yourself. You do the deceiving. And that's really important for you to understand that when James is thinking about this, he's not thinking like Paul and Galatians, like Dave was just teaching on. He's not thinking about like John is in 1 John. They're both worried about false teachers coming into the churches. False teachers that are coming in and are spreading lies. James has a much more difficult task. He's trying to convince you that you're telling yourselves lies. And the problem with this is, this isn't like the hypocrisy where you know the truth, but you just pretend you don't. You actually believe the lies. You're deceiving yourselves. So James is coming in. All of these things that he's writing in this passage are aimed at that one thing, to get your eyes open to the truth so you don't deceive yourselves any longer. This is like, the singer on American Idol who actually thinks they can sing. There's some of them who come in, you know they don't. You know they're just messing around. But then there are those who really think they can sing. And no matter what the judges say, they will actually argue back with them. One girl started crying and said, but I can hear myself. <laughs> of course, Simon's like, and that just means you're also tone deaf. Goodbye. Right? That's why he's my favorite. But this is also like that time you went into the test and you walked out and your mom said, how'd you do? And you said, aced it, good, fantastic. And she said, then why is the 47 in the grade book? Yeah. (laughs) I studied plenty, right? This is also like the athletes who don't make varsity 
and get mad at the coach. My husband's a football coach. This happens all the time. List for varsity comes out. But instead of thinking, I didn't do well enough to make it to varsity, almost every person says back, that coach hates me. I have to tell you this, just as a behind-the-scenes thing, if we thought you could win games and let us keep our jobs, we would put you on varsity. But this is what we're like. We're self-deceived. These group of 12 Jewish Christians that are scattered around the Roman Empire are now representing Christianity, Christ followers, everywhere they go. But James knows they have some issues. And these issues are deceiving them. They're confused about four things in this passage, and we're going to look at each one of those. The first thing are they're confused about their anger. They're deceived about what happens with anger. Look at the passage. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. They're confused about conflict and how justice happens in this world. I want you to imagine that you came in this morning and you heard somebody make a racist remark. You heard someone just absolutely tear tear down a, a young girl here. You heard Dave or Tim or I just mock and rip somebody apart. What are you supposed to do if you're the one who heard that? Well, I hope your first thought is, I'm getting involved. We want you to get involved and be someone who would fight for justice in this place, outside in this world. But how do we do it? Because to us, there is probably not one of us who thinks that you could be slow to anger and actually fight for justice. It almost seems like they have to go hand in hand. Like if you don't have a burning rage inside of you against racism, you can't actually fight racism. If you don't have a burning passion to have some, to the church to be a safe place for people, then, then you can't have God's righteousness reign on, on earth as it is in heaven. But it's not true. It's, for most of us, we are so quick to speak. We are so quick to anger. And is James here telling you that anger's wrong? Is anger a sin? No, of course not. There are so many things I want you to be angry about. There are things in this world God hates. God himself is angry. You are in his image. Be angry. But be slow to anger. Do you know why? It's because you have a Christ who is slow to anger. You have a Christ who is quick to listen to you. You have a Christ who is who is slow to speak harsh words into your life. You have a Christ who looks like something. And if, as these Christians are going out into this world, they're supposed to look like this. You'll, you'll know this is a theme I speak on all the time, but I know how it is. And unless I hear something over and over, I kind of don't start to grasp the fullness of it. So I want to explain it again. When God saved you, He did not do so to take a really yucky you and clean you up and polish you off and make you into a really good you. God's not trying to take a really impatient Kevin and just make Kevin a little more a little more patient. If Kevin was a little more patient, he'd be good. We're not trying to take your disobedience and just polish it off a little. Hear this. 
When Christ came for you, he came to kill you. It's, it's not a euphemism, and I'm not being dramatic. He came to crucify you. He came to bury you. You're not supposed to be alive anymore. You're supposed to do what God created all mankind to do back in the garden. He created us in His image. And when Christ came, He crucified you. He buried you. He raised you up with Him. He ascended you up with Him. And He seated you with Him to turn you into Him. Your new image is not you but better. It's you gone. And Christ alive. Which means as you come to this, as you read these, don't be deceived into thinking that you can stay like you and belong to Him. It doesn't work like that. If He saved you, it doesn't happen perfectly. If you heard Dave, there's a false teaching that perfect sanctification should happen right here on earth. That you will literally turn in to Christ on earth completely. There will be no difference in His patience in yours, in your obedience in His. That's not what happens. It is slow often. It is progressive always. But it must be happening or else you have a much bigger problem than your anger. And I need you to know that. The reason James is talking like this is not because he has a bunch of lists of commands he wants to give you. It's because when James is talking like this, the sum of the commands is Jesus Christ. Every time you read a command, you're just reading one more picture in the character sketch of Jesus. We obey them because they are the new image of us. Christ in us is the hope of our glory. And Christ is slow to anger. He does not snap at you. He does not get impatient with you. He knows exactly how much of you is left in you. And it doesn't frustrate him. He is so quick to listen to you. If you would turn right now and say to him, Jesus, you never have to say his name twice like you do your mother. He listens to you so quickly, and he loves to do what you would like him to do. You believe that he's quick to respond to you. He cares about what you care about. He never thinks your cares are stupid. He listens to you. He loves knowing your heart. And yeah, he knows everything about you, but he is so slow to anger. The reason James could say be slow to anger is because he's just sketching you a, a picture Here's Jesus. He's slow to anger. And he cares that you are too. The next thing they have confused about is this. They're confused about their sin. He would not tell them to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness unless there was filthiness and rampant wickedness. Is he talking to unbelievers? No. Which means what are we going to find in the church? Filthiness and rampant wickedness. They don't waste ink when they write the Bible. If you see them say to someone, put away malice, envious, covetousness, it's because the church is full of malice and envious and is covetous of one another. 
But they're confused about how this gets apart. Notice he says, put this all away. And then he tells them, and and receive with meekness the implanted word. The way to do the first is to do the second. There is effort to do, but the effort is aimed at the second. The reason the first is here is because they're not doing the second. So what does it mean to receive the word? Well, first, guess what? Shocking. You actually have to read it. And there's a lot of it. It's going to take you a long time. You have to do it day after day after day, week after week. And for some of you, the last time you opened a Bible was at impact when we asked you to do personal devotions. We know that. I know that because it's been true of my life where there have been days and then they added up to weeks and then they add up to months. Good news. It's still living and active. It's still ready for you. You have to read it. But how do you receive it with meekness? Meekness is a word we get really confused about, so I'm going to explain it to you with a few analogies. Have any of you, and I mean this is, have you ever driven a really high-powered sports car? Anybody? I have, and I absolutely loved it. <laughs> What I wouldn't love is all the tickets that I would get from driving that really nice high-powered sports car. But what I loved about it, and the guy sitting in the passenger seat did not love this about it, I had no idea that the slightest touch on that accelerator would assume the car assumes you're ready to go now. And the slightest touch on the brake, it thought I meant now stop. But what I really loved was the steering wheel. In my minivan, it's nothing like a mom van, right? You have to like turn the wheel like 18 times to get around a corner, right? You know, it's like, are you sure? Are you really sure you want to go there? Are you sure it's safe? I don't know. Just checking, just making you look really carefully. So in that that car, the first time I tried to take a curve, which he was smart and kept me in the parking lot, right? It turned so far with the slightest touch. What that meant was that every single thing about that car that was so powerful was under my slightest control. It was responsive to me. And there is nothing I love more than something powerful under my control. (laughs) I wish that was not so true. unlike my children, right? Like, I wish they could get this. But the thing is, if if you don't know that understanding, if you've ever been an athlete, you've had this screamed at you because there is nothing my husband loves more than powerful athletes. But he really needs them to do what they're told to do. I was talking with uh, Tim before about this, asking about how the season's going over in Cove, and He was talking about another player, and I said, you know, he's just not doing as well. He's a returning veteran, and he said he's just not doing well. And I said, let me guess. He doesn't do what he's told to do. He's probably a great runner, probably has a lot of power, but he's actually not hitting the holes that are made for him. He bounces it outside every time because he thinks just get him the ball, and he's going to make something happen. And I promise you that those coaches are up in that box saying over and over Just run the play we give you. The problem is athletes are not known for their meekness. Athletes are not known for their responsiveness. I want you to think about every NBA player you know. Athletes are not known for their, they're known for their power, their ability, but under control. Whenever you hear somebody say they play as a team, this is a coach's way of saying 
They have all the individual talents, but they actually use them as they are told to use them. You'll see it happen in a really great offense run, an amazing defensive stand. Every person had to do what they're told to do. If you've ever sat in a film session with a coach and he's screaming at you, Lucas, where were you supposed to be? Norman, what's your assignment? <laughs> like every time. Matt, seriously, stay in your lane. Where's your lane? Where are you supposed to be? They stop the film and they show you because they're trying to tell you, we want you to be as good as you can be. Now do all of that power in the direction we're telling it to go. That would be me watching these guys and saying, Tim, you had an amazing game. You were so meek today. That sounds like such an insult to him. It is not. It is exactly like his Savior. Do you know your Savior? Do you know how much power he has? How much wisdom? How much ability? How much knowledge? Do you know what he could do with a, a little blink of an eyelash? Create all things. He exhales and things stay alive. But guess what he did with all of that power? He humbled it and renounced it to do exactly what his father told him to do. He actually says this in John. I do not speak on my own, but the father has given me a command what to speak and what to say. He didn't even speak the, his own words. He only spoke what the Father did because he came to bear image of the Father on earth and then he sent you off as his body to be powerfully meek. And now here he comes along and he says, I need you to receive the word like that. What would that look like? It would look like when you hear things like be slow to speak, be slow to anger, be quick to listen, that you would receive that as authoritative over your life. You would hear that as bridling you, as shaping you, as molding you, as controlling you. You would hear that like you hear a play out of the playbook. When our guys hear the coaches call in a play, they understand that play right there they called means something for me. It means my actions are determined by that play. I hope you like football. That's really all the analogies I have. It's October. So, but do you understand what I'm trying to say? Like, you need to hear the word like it's a play call for you so that you get in your lane. You know your position. You understand the defense. You know the play on offense, and you are ready to do what it says with no effort. The problem is, is that so many of us don't even know how to read it. So you don't know how to take the prophecies and read it. How do you take a psalm and apply it to my life? What am I supposed to do with Amos? He's really ticked about everything. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? He's, they're so down. Well, here's the deal. You have an equipping class coming up for six weeks. You can learn how to read the Bible. You need to know it. You're not supposed to know it. You weren't born with this knowledge. And when you have Christ inside of you, it doesn't mean you have all of a sudden the ability to know how to read Scripture. So come to the class and sit with us and learn how to read the Bible for just six weeks. Because it's so important that James would actually say in verse 18, it's what saved your soul. 
Hebrews 4 tells us it's living and active. 1 John 2 says it abides in us. 1 Thessalonians 2 says it works in us. And in verse 16, you heard him say that it brought you to life. When we receive it, it works in us by his spirit. Receive the implanted word like it's a seed that you were given to grow, not a rock you're supposed to carry around. All right, third, they're deceived about obedience. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't deceive yourself. How? Because you'll come to the word and you'll read it and you'll think about it and you'll pray about it and you'll talk to your community group about it and you'll go to G groups and talk about it. Then you go to school and talk about it. And nothing in your life changes. It's like sitting around and all coming to an agreement. Yeah, we should not be so angry. Yeah, let's pray for one another. I'm praying for you today, brother. Let's pray. Let's pray about our anger. We're going to pray about our anger, think about our anger. I'll tweet about my anger. And nothing changes. It's a deceptive way of being religious to think that you're reading the Bible and knowing the Bible in any way is equal to obedience. And the concern for James is that these people know so much, but they're doing so little with it. And I have to tell you, it's, it's always what I think about those of us who live in the church. Do you know what I mean? We're here all the time. Your parents are Christians, or you go to a Christian school, you're raised under this. It becomes so normal for you to hear the words of Christ that you forget it is not good news to be discussed together. It is good news meant to transform you into his image. I don't want you to hear the words like too many did in Matthew 7. Look on the screen. You know this. It's so familiar. But look at the part that is highlighted up there. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them and does them will be like a man who built a house on the rock and the rains fell and the floods came up and the winds blew and beat against the house. But the house did not fall, right? Because it was built on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and does not do them. It's like a man who built his house upon the sand and the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and great was its fall. Guys, Jesus isn't being dramatic either. He's warning the people. You have to do the things you know. You can't just speak about them. Jesus isn't joking. There is nothing you can do to receive salvation. It is a gift of God by grace through faith. There is nothing you can do to earn it. There's no button you press that gives it to you. It is a gift of God because no one's going to boast about how salvation came to them. It is Jesus. But after salvation, if you have no works, after you're saved, if your life is not being transformed into greater and greater obedience to Christ, you should be so worried about yourself. Don't be deceived all the way into hell thinking you can tell me about how many Sunday school classes you went to and how many times you memorized scripture for school and all the sermons you've listened to, all the books you discussed. 
you have to do what he says. James gives us a word picture and says it's like this, verse 23. If anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror for he looks at himself and then goes away and immediately forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Why do we look into mirrors? It's to check ourselves. You get something in your eye, you go to a mirror to dig it out. You don't go to go, yeah, it's still, yeah, I was right. I thought I felt something. I was right. It's there. You go to a mirror to get it out. You look in the mirror to find out what does your hair look like? What does this clothes look like? So you can do something about it. James is saying God's given you a mirror too, and you're supposed to be glancing in it. And he calls it the law of liberty. So what is that? Well, good news for us. In chapter 2, he says it again, but he expounds on it. So look up here at 2, 12, and 13. So speak and so act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Hear him again. If you're over here and I don't have any mercy... You can expect to be judged without mercy. That rule of what you're doing to others is what you have happened to you. This do unto others, you're starting to get the feel for it again. It's no different than Jesus' words again in Matthew 22. He asked, this isn't on the screen, Matthew 22, he says, is something most of you know, what is the greatest commandment? And you know it started in your head already. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But the second is like the first. What is that one? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. James is asking you to stare into your love for God and your love for others and to glance to see how this is going. How is this Jesus image looking in your life? There's your standard. The sum of the law and the prophets, Jesus said, is, is, is all right there in that, those two sentences. How are you doing? How's your devotion to Christ? Is your heart taken up for God? Is it taken up for other things? What gets your loyalty? What gets your time? What gets your energy? Where do your, where do your thoughts go? What motivates you? Why did you do today And then yesterday, and then the day before, why did you do what you did all day long? Down to the very things about what you eat and drink, whether you go out or come back in, whether the work of your hands, your words from your mouth, your emotions about things, what's guiding those? What's motivating them? It's supposed to be freeing yourself from idolatry, which is where you started out before, and now finding worship of God to be the one thing that motivates all of your life. You're supposed to glance into the law of liberty. Love God, love others. But then what do we do with that? Do we just go, okay, yeah, I can see. I see an area yesterday. I can see how my words affected her. Those, those were not good words. They were tearing down words. They did not build her up. I'm going to leave here, and I'm going I'm to leave the word behind. I'm going to go try harder. I'm going to go find her, and I'm going to go try harder to be nice to her. It's going to last how long? If you're me, 2.5 seconds, right, before I'm irritated by her again. No, we don't 
We look into the law of liberty. We don't leave it behind to go change ourselves. Again, when you look into the law of liberty, glance at how you're doing and then go back to the Word of God to find Christ. If you want to know about your anger problem, find Christ's patience. If you want to fix the disobedience in you, find Christ's obedience. If you would like to see how to change that gossiping, covetous heart, then find the contentment of Christ. You don't leave the Word to go change yourself. You go back to the Word to see Christ now. Here's what's, here's what's so tempting to do, though. We get so intent on the mirror that you're, it's tempting to stay there. And if I ask you, how are things going? Like with, you told me you were having struggle with patience with your parents. You just don't think they're listening to you well. And you want to speak well to them, but you want them to listen to you. And I'm like, I hear you. I promise you I'm praying for that. And I come back to you next week and I say, how'd that go? And you're like, I have seen so much in me. I am so impatient with them. I think they ought to just get me, even though like, they don't know what's going on with me. I don't let them into my whole life. And I'm like, okay, I hear you. That's so good. So then what did you do with that? I just told, I just told God how sorry I am. Great. Repent. Yes. Do that. Turn. So then what happened? Well, that's it. They don't she didn't know like the next step is. So I repented. And I went back to the Word to find Christ there because He's my image. I need to see Him. If I'm going to be like Him, I have to know Him. This is life God told them so many thousands of years ago that they know me. If you would know God, you will find life in you growing more and more and more. But once you do... You're supposed to come back and then keep glancing again. A little more glances. Don't be afraid of the glances. Don't be afraid of the glances. You know what you'll discover? You'll discover things like you can't wait for impact. How many can't wait for impact? It's me. I'm right here with you. I cannot wait for impact. But if I ask your little brothers and sisters how impact was going today, You know how much you love to play with them and sing silly songs with them and how much you teach them the Bible, how kind you were to them, how outreaching you are to them. Would I find that impact kind of switched off in you? Take a glance in that mirror and then go find a Christ who never switches off with you. He stays on with everyone because he says that we have to love the neighbors closest to us in Jerusalem and Judea before we head out to the ends of the earth. Start right here. I want you to understand that I know that glancing into the mirror of the Word, thinking about yourself can be very, very defeating. I know that. I know that because that was me. I was saved, but I was about 10 years older than all of you as students. And there was so much wrong in me. I had been the the person in college that Christians literally wouldn't speak to because I just wanted to destroy them, and they sensed it. Well, it's a self-protective instinct. I totally get that. But I was the one who never got the gospel shared with her, walked by the Baptist Student Union every day. They never spoke to me, but they knew me. But when Christ came, he crushed me, and all of a sudden I'm reading the Word, and every single thing I read is opposed to who I am. It was so defeating. Until a friend taught me 
I see you too. But do you see Christ? And I realized if I would become so enamored with Jesus, if I would stop thinking so much about me, like it's a shock to God how how bad I am, then so much would begin to change in me. It happens like this, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are transformed into his likeness, one degree of glory after the other, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Know this verse so well. Because what it says is you can't just see Jesus. Satan sees Jesus. You have to see him and worship him for what you see. Satan sees Jesus. He's couldn't care less about that. He likes himself more than he likes Jesus. But whatever you, whatever you see in the Word, work on worshiping Jesus for it. And the last thing they're deceived about is true religion. If anyone thinks he's religious, but does not bridle his tongue, that's the first thing. If your speech was like Jesus' speech, it would be bridled. It would be, again, meek. It would be under control. You would encourage like Jesus does. You wouldn't destroy like Satan does. If your mouth still bears the accent of the father of lies, the deceiver, the destroyer, rather than your new father adopted through Jesus Christ, then don't think that you have some sort of religion that is anywhere close to pure and undefiled. Secondly, James wants us to know that pure and undefiled religion looks like something. So glance into the mirror. Do you know how I would know that your religion is pure and undefiled? I would find out from the most vulnerable in our town. If you're in Belton, I would, be, I would know about your true religion from the most vulnerable people in Belton. The orphans without the father, the widows without the husband. Who plays the role of husband and father? God. And they're supposed to have that image on earth. They should have a husband who protects and provides, a father who loves and cares for and provides and protects. They're missing that role until today because you got to town. Jesus sent you to the most vulnerable people in our society. And I should know all about your religion from those vulnerable people. But at the end, notice he doesn't let anybody off the hook. Thirdly, He tells you that pure and undefiled religion keeps yourself unstained from the world because it is true, truly generally, that those who love to be in the world, they love to be around unbelievers. You love to seek out the lost. You love to hang out with them. You knew when Chance the Rapper dropped his last mixtape. You saw the video, all right. He dropped it just three days ago. Have you not seen it? If I say free Gucci, I'm not talking about a purse sale. Right, two people know, right? These are people who, like me, probably love to be in the world. We, we know the world. We know the culture. But the problem is we forget that the culture can shape us as much as we can shape the culture. Here's the thing. Like, here's a personal example. I don't drink alcohol. I haven't drank alcohol since my 26-year-old daughter was nine months old. I haven't had a drop since, except for communion taking in Ukraine, which you can't get a pass on, right? Which they use real wine. But that's it. That's my one sips once a year of alcohol. 
Now, I'd be right to say that that's because I drank a lifetime's worth between the ages of 11 and 21. They'd be right about that. But the real reason is I still think about using alcohol. I didn't say drinking alcohol. I still think about using alcohol. I still think about escaping through alcohol. I think about Lyra in an orphanage for another year being harmed without parents, without a family. For another year, it'll be five years before we could get a yes from when we started. And you know that sometimes I would like for those thoughts just to go away. They plague me at night. Sometimes I'm up for hours just thinking about her and praying to God. But every now and then, I'm just so tired of it. I just would like to quit. Does that make sense to y'all? I just want to shut them off. You do the same. You all have your escapes when you just want to stop thinking. Well, every time you do that, you just used the world for you. Did you turn to God? Did I turn to God? No. Are we going to find our rest in God? No. That's what 2K is for. All right? That's what our relationships are for. That's what our friendships are for. That's what guys are for. That's what girls are for. That's what parties are for. That's what Chance's mixtape is for. I just want to tune out the world. But guess what? That world is not just staining you. It's unshaping you from Christ's image. Pure and unfiled religion is like Christ able to sit with tax collectors and with sinners and with prostitutes. And have no sin. So if you need to grow in this area, go read about Christ. See God send him into the world and see him send you in the world. But like Jesus, with a prostitute with no lust for her. She has value and dignity and personhood to Jesus. She's not there to be used by him. Jesus didn't use the world. He went into the world to save the world, to reconcile the world to himself. Again, when James is coming to a passage like this with all of these lists of rules, it can seem very much like, like he's just got like commands on his mind. Like, okay, we're going to go try harder. We're going to go try harder. I don't want you to see it like that. I want you to see it like this. Like if you could summarize this passage. Next slide. Hold this. If you have faith from God, you have faith that works for God. For God. For God's image. For God's glory. You have faith that works. When you see these commands in Scripture, don't hear James trying to give you your new to-do list. See him like an artist sketching you, his brother Jesus Christ. And as you go, compare yourself to the Word. Where is your image just not lining up with his in the mirror? And then go back to the Word. Receive it meekly like an implanted Word that grows up out of you. So that you do what you were meant to do, what you will always do right back here on earth. We will live right back here on earth. Heaven is not your destination. It is your way station. Your destination is right back here on earth, imaging God in a kingdom. James has given you the secret. You can start that today. You can do that today. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Let's pray.
Father, we're thankful for the gift of your word. I'm thankful for the gift of James that would write it. I know that he knows how hard this is. I know he, he knows what it's like to be someone who hated Jesus and now comes to see him as the Messiah. I pray that you would do in our church what he was aiming at for these churches, that you would make us a people called by your name who image you everywhere they go because we have received with meekness, with authority over us, Father. Make us powerful people under control. And gosh, if you would do it in this generation, Father, the world would not look like this stupid upcoming election any longer. It'd be a place where truth reigns. I want that, Father. I want that for them. I want it for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. It is, of course, late. So (laughs) you are dismissed if you need to go. If you have time and want to stay after, you can.